I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John 18, 1 through 27. With this lesson, we begin the fourth and final section of John. The first part of the Gospel we titled The Word Among Us. That was John 1, 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12. It contained two sections. In the first section, Jesus began to reveal himself publicly, beginning at the wedding in Cana. We were introduced to this problem that many were believing in him without truly believing in him. In the second section, chapters 5 through 10, opposition increased as Jesus continued to reveal his nature publicly. Opposition intensified. That section ended with an attempt to kill Jesus, and Jesus withdrew from public ministry. But then in the transitional chapters of 11 and 12, at the sickness and death of Lazarus, Jesus again enters into public ministry. That leads into his triumphal entry into Jerusalem before finally pulling away again to focus his final hours on private instruction for his disciples. So with chapter 13, we moved into the second half of the gospel, which we titled The Hour of His Glory. His hour has come. In the first section of this part, Jesus was mostly speaking, and he was speaking to his disciples. He was preparing them for life and ministry without him physically present among them. This was going to be a huge change for them. Those chapters, chapters 13 to 17, have proven to be quite dense. You know, it's, as I said, it's almost 100% Jesus speaking. And in that speaking, as, as he teaches, he weaves together multiple significant themes and that get repeated throughout. So we have to pay very close attention. And we had to really slow down and take our time with those chapters. And we focused on the idea of abiding in Christ as, as a heart reality that we abide in our heart, but also as action. They're acts of abiding. And, and that all leads to the fruit of abiding. Life without Jesus physically present is not going to be life without Jesus, but it's going to be a new and different way of walking with Jesus, who's, who's not going to be walking physically present, but spiritually present through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Before we can get to that reality, Jesus must be lifted up, because the, the Spirit is going to be sent after the cross. So now we enter into the final section of John, chapters 18 to 20. So far, each of our four sections, two in the first half of the gospel, two in the second half of the gospel, have divided nicely into seven subsections with clear parallelism in the text. It's not hard to recognize a chiastic arrangement in these first three sections. This final section also divides nicely into seven subsections, though the parallelism is less apparent. The outer scenes of this section both show Jesus with his disciples. At the beginning, Jesus is with his disciples in a garden, and then at the end, he's with his disciples in a closed room. The two scenes that come right after the garden depict the trial of Jesus, first before the high priest and then before Pilate. The two scenes that come just before the closed room depict Jesus in the tomb. First, he's laid in the tomb, and then he's risen and he's beside the tomb. The middle section, then, is going to show us Jesus lifted up on the cross. 
We're beginning this lesson with the first two subsections, Jesus in the garden and Jesus before the high priest. The arrest of Jesus and the Jewish interrogation or Jewish trial of Jesus. From the start, right here in chapter 18, John introduces a theme that is particular to John, and it's going to carry through these chapters. This is something that makes his gospel different from the three synoptic gospels. That theme coming through the passion, through the arrest, through the trial, through the crucifixion, is that Jesus is in control. The synoptic gospels faithfully describe for us the meekness of Jesus as he goes to the cross, fulfilling the imagery of Isaiah 53.7, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That doesn't mean that Jesus did not speak at all. It means he did not oppose his arrest. He did not argue for his release. He submits to the arrest, to the abuse, to the crucifixion without arguing his case. And the image of meekness is a correct image. Jesus goes meekly. But John would remind us not to confuse meekness with weakness. Jesus is not a helpless victim. His meekness comes from a willing restraint of power. He is a victim, but he allows that. There is abuse of power against him, and he goes with it. And if we've misunderstood this by the images given to us in the synoptic gospels, John's witness is helping us to focus our perspective more accurately. He's showing us that there's, yes, Jesus went meekly, but he has power and he has control of the entire situation as he's going. And we might make the mistake of seeing Jesus as weak and helpless. We might also make the mistake of seeing Jesus as a a helpless victim, unwillingly or, or unknowingly given up by his father to a horrible death. Like Jesus is, is some child, and, and God allows his child to die in order that we might be saved. He doesn't rush in to save his child. And that, that might create a, a powerfully moving illustration, but it also gives the wrong image. Jesus is, is not a little child who's given over by his father. Jesus is God the Son. He's not unwilling He's acting in full harmony, full agreement with his father. He goes to the cross by an act of his own will. He declared in John 10, 17 to 18, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from the father. Even as Jesus allowed himself to be taken to the cross, the behavior and the speech of Jesus as he goes to the cross reveals that he is actually in control throughout. We start in the garden. The first three verses set the scene. This is John 18, 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus had gotten up to leave the room of the Last Supper at the end of chapter 14, 
presumably he was he was walking through the city. He was moving to the outer gates of Jerusalem. Here we see him now exiting the city with his disciples and entering into a garden. From the other Gospels, we know this is the Garden of Gethsemane, and we know that Jesus' purpose for coming to this garden was to pray. He will pray deep into the night as his disciples fall asleep. He will express his wish to not drink this cup of suffering and shame that is coming upon him with the cross, while at the same time affirming his commitment to do exactly that. He doesn't look forward to, he doesn't relish the suffering, but it is the plan and it is his full commitment. John doesn't repeat this prayer, but he's already reported the same message in the words Jesus spoke earlier in chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So instead of telling us about the the prayer, which we already know from the other Gospels, John takes us into the garden and he moves straight to the betrayal. Judas knew the garden. He knew Jesus planned to go there or maybe had someone watching and easily was able to figure out where Jesus was headed. The time and the place make an ideal spot for an arrest. The garden is outside of the city. It's a secluded place. There are no crowds about. Jesus is alone with his disciples. It's night. Judas comes with armed temple officers and Roman soldiers. If at full strength, the reference here to a cohort of soldiers would indicate a thousand men. A Roman battalion, however, was rarely at full strength, and even if the battalion was at full strength, the reference most likely refers only to a representation of that battalion. It's not the full cohort. But considering other writings we have from Pilate regarding unruly mobs at the main Jewish feasts, Roman caution in providing soldiers fits the times. The arrest of a popular public figure like Jesus would warrant significant backup. But though they come in strength, John describes Jesus as the one who takes the initiative. Here is the complete account of their arrest. This is John 18, 4 through 11. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? John begins by asserting, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Now, I have no idea the exact feelings of Jesus when he saw Judas coming towards him with a band of Jewish and Roman soldiers, except that I'm sure surprise was not one of the feelings. You know, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. He knows. He's he's in control. 
And so he takes initiative with the soldiers. They're coming to get him. He moves forward to them, and he asks the first question, whom do you seek? It's a question that's strikingly similar to the very first words of Jesus in this gospel. Way back in chapter 1, when two disciples were following John the Baptist, and then they started following Jesus, and Jesus turns around and he sees them, he says, what do you seek? The irony of John is in full play when Jesus speaking to this group, to Judas and these soldiers and the high priest, whom do you seek? Yeah, that's the question we're supposed to be asking when we're reading this. Who really is Jesus? Who is he? But the soldiers, they, just, they name him without really knowing his, his name. They, they only know Jesus from Nazareth. They call him Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus responds by revealing a more telling name. Like my Bible, your Bible probably has Jesus responding, I am he. What Jesus literally says in the Greek is, I am. He speaks his name to them, the name he's been using through his ministry. It is the name of God revealed in Exodus 3 to Moses, I am. In speaking this name, Jesus allows, he hasn't allowed this up to this point, but at this moment, he allows the power of his glory to momentarily overwhelm the soldiers. When, therefore, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is in control. The soldiers were knocked to the ground by the power of Jesus, which he unleashed with the declaration of his name. He is the I am. He is creator God. Every knee will bow and every knee will confess that Jesus is Lord, whether willingly or unwillingly, and they fall to the ground. They are blind. They do not see him. They do not know who he is. But just for this brief moment, they get a taste of the reality of Jesus. But then in meekness, he veils his power. He cannot be forced to submit, but he can choose to submit. So he asks again, whom do you seek? And they repeat again, Jesus the Nazarene. Then Jesus commands, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way. And if we don't catch the idea of control and power here, we could read this as a request. Jesus is asking, please, just take me, let them go. They don't have anything to do with it, just take me. But in light of the power that has just been expressed and the knocking of the soldiers to the ground, when Jesus says, I told you I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way, that's not really a request. That's that's a calmly spoken command. And the soldiers obey. They don't they don't take the disciples, they just take Jesus. John adds that this was to fulfill Jesus' earlier words, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And you might remember that it sounds like uh what was said in chapter six, which had a more spiritual meaning. Jesus would lose not one, but raise all the Father had given him to eternal life. So that losing not one doesn't mean arrest or death. It means he's going to get us to heaven. So this reference perhaps is is better connected to what he just prayed in chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them and not one of them perished. That's similar, but that's a little different. That could apply to the the physical realm that Jesus has, has guarded the disciples. The plan was for him to go to his death 
but the plan was for these disciples to give birth to the new Christian movement. They're the foundation of that movement. And Jesus, showing his control, protects the disciples. They do not get arrested. And there's a connection between physical protection and spiritual protection. You know, it, it may be God's will to not physically protect us in this, this life, to bring us home um, to heaven after violence. That It is possible. But but in this in this sense, Jesus' sovereign power to protect these unarmed disciples in the face of a Roman cohort, it reminds us, it reassures us that Jesus, he really does the ha- have the power to safely bring us home to heaven, just as he promised in chapter 6. He will lose not one. Now, in contrast to the control of Jesus, who acts in harmony with the will of God, Peter impulsively strikes out. He shows his desire to prove Jesus wrong about the denial. Jesus says, you will deny me. Peter says, I'll go to the death for you. Jesus says, no, you won't. Well, yes, I will. He's willing to go to the death, and he shows it by pulling out a sword and striking off the ear of a, a servant. But at the same time, he's, he's showing that he, he lacks insight and he lacks trust in the plan of God. So this is, this is coming out of his flesh. And Jesus rebukes him, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter's disoriented in the midst of this crisis, and and his impulsiveness and his, his acting out of the flesh is a strong contrast to Jesus' calm control. Jesus knows what he's about. He understands the will of God. He's going willingly as a lamb led to the slaughter. We move from the arrest of Jesus to the trial of Jesus, depicted in John eighteen twelve to 27. Again, we see Jesus in control. Let's read the whole passage. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. The soldiers take Jesus to the father-in-law of the high priest. Apparently, the Roman soldiers had just been tagging along as backup to the temple officers. The arrest is a Jewish arrest leading to a Jewish trial. The language of high priest here can be confusing. Is Annas high priest or is Caiaphas high priest? While Annas is no longer the current high priest, his son-in-law is. But just as a former president retains the right to be addressed as Mr. President, a former high priest retains the right to be addressed as high priest. And they're they're at his home. That's not unusual. It's not unusual that a, a large household of a prominent citizen serves both as his dwelling and as his place of official business. Now, Jewish trials were not legally held at night, so this seems to be an off-the-books interrogation. And perhaps that's why Jesus is taken first not to the high priest, but to the house of the former high priest, and then only officially later turned over to Caiaphas. Before getting into the interrogation, John's attention turns briefly to Peter. One of the disciples, we do not know which one, is connected and is able to get Peter into the courtyard. Peter's confronted by a slave girl, the girl at the door. You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And I, don't, I doubt Peter was afraid of the slave girl. Um, Peter is afraid to be found out by the soldiers, and they're all, they're all standing right inside with a, with a bunch of other servants and gathered around a charcoal fire to warm themselves. And Peter, as he enters the door, he, he, he sees that he's in enemy territory. He's just struck the high priest's slave. And it, it, it's an impulsive moment of the flesh. And there was adrenaline pumping at that, at that time. And it seems to have kept Peter going. He's compelled to stay with Jesus. And he courageously follows him and, and finds his way into the courtyard. He's standing outside till the other disciple comes in and gets him and brings him in. But now, finally, his courage has left him. As he stands in the darkness, surrounded by the enemy, he does not want to be found out. He's afraid. And so he answers the girl, I am not. And you notice the, the irony, the contrast. Jesus is, I am. Peter says, I am not. It is a rejection of his true identity. We can only become who we were truly created to be in relationship with our creator God. This is eternal life that we know him and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. So with devastating negation of the truth that he has accepted, Peter refuses to be identified by his right relationship with Jesus Christ. I am not. This night, Peter has swung from one extreme to the other. First, he denies the plan of God through mislaid courage. Now he denies the plan of God through overwhelming fear. Again, he is a a contrast to the calmness, to the control of Jesus. Jesus continues the straight and true path of God towards the cross. The high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answers and says, I've openly spoken to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? 
Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus is in control. He is faithful to Jewish law, and he's correctly challenging his accusers to produce witnesses to confirm what they're saying. He's, he's, he, I have had a public ministry. I've spoken in synagogues. I've spoken in the temple. So this very well might be a, a challenge to the illegality of the proceedings that are taking place during this nighttime interrogation. Jewish law demands a trial with witnesses. And the striking of Jesus just affirms the the dishonor of this interrogation of the Jewish officers. Now, Jesus is the one in the right, and he says, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? They strike him because they're not in the pursuit of justice. They are, they are the darkness that seeks to overcome Jesus. The darkness of the human heart. They want to shut him out. They, they want to, he's come to his own and they've rejected him. Failing to get anywhere with Jesus, Annas sends him to Caiaphas. John then in the story returns to Peter. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. So they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Again, that negation of his identity. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. We expect the Judases and the Caiaphases of the world to reject Jesus. But Peter? You know, if we didn't know this story so well, we'd be shocked. Peter is as close to Jesus as anyone. Peter is a true believer. But before we're too hard on Peter, we have to step by and recognize that that nobody is with Jesus. You know, just there's this one disciple who got in and and Peter. Everybody else is scattered and run away. Peter's he's there, but he's denying him. He's come this far, but he's failed. Peter is not just Peter here. Peter is you. You are Peter. Peter is me. I'm Peter. In our best days, in our best moments, we stand up and give witness to Jesus. Where else would we go? You're the one with the the words of eternal life. And and we would say with Peter, Lord, I would not deny you. Don't think such a thing. I, I might sin and mess up in a lot of ways, but I'll never deny you. I know who you are. You're the, you're the Holy One from God. I'm holding on to you till the end. You know, and that's the heart we want to have for Jesus, and sometimes we believe that that is the heart we do have for Jesus. And, and sometimes it's shown. Sometimes we're, we're pushed and we stand up for Jesus. But where the Spirit might be strong, the flesh is often weak. And as we, we grow with Jesus as believers, we're going to pass through a lot of darkness, a lot of stumbling, a lot of disorientation. And and when things go dark, we stumble. We need to accept the reality that that that, that any one of us, we're not even likely to have made it into the courtyard with Peter. He got that far, and then he fell. Peter continues his denial of Jesus. And he says, I am not again, and then he denies again three times, just as Jesus said. That is, that is the flesh we still carry with us as a believer. 
And if our salvation depended on our own constancy, we would be lost. If the promise depended on our faithfulness, we would stand condemned. The promise would be broken. Grace would be emptied of power. If grace depended on my ability to remain true through the disorientation of darkness and fear and suffering, I would have no hope the promise would be rendered null and invalid if it depends on me. This is truly a dark night of the soul moment for Peter. He has failed, and he is he's left alone in the darkness. He's been tested, and he appears to come up empty. And for the moment, John just leaves it there. Peter fails to stay true. So Judas and Caiaphas, men like that, they, they're giving this, this contrast to Jesus as the darkness contrasts to light. Peter is giving us a different contrast in this, this story. He doesn't show us the rebelliousness of flesh as a non-believer. He shows us the weakness of flesh as a believer. Even when we want to believe, we want to do right, we can't. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Human flesh fails this night. Jesus is going to have to go on to the cross alone. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.